Life expectancy in the ancient world was between about 30 and 40 years old. Um, those numbers didn't change much actually until about the 17th century when hygiene and advances in medicine improved such that today life expectancy is between about 75 and 80 years old if not beyond. Now obviously there were some in the ancient world who lived much longer but the reality is that anyone over 40 and certainly anyone over 50 was considered old. This week marks the end of a series that we've been in for the last 10 weeks on the life of Mary. And by ancient measures, here at the end, Mary is an old woman of about 50. She'd outlived her husband, and she knew she didn't have long to live, but she didn't act like a retired person. Instead, she continued to be active. Mary was part of a group of about 100 or more people who faithfully followed Jesus from place to place. Now, they all weren't there at the same time, but instead they came and went whenever circumstances allowed them to be free. We know Mary was part of that group because of something that Luke records in the book of Acts toward the beginning of his history of the early Christian church. Now, Acts opens just after Jesus has risen from the dead. We're told that over a period of 40 days, he spent time with his followers, first of all, letting them know that he was alive, but secondly, instructing them, teaching them important ideas that would shape the growth and development of the early church. He taught them, for example, that they were part of a new kingdom, not an earthly one, but the kingdom of God. This was a difficult idea for them to get their heads around, but they slowly began to understand. You see, Jesus radically defined two important institutions from the ancient world. The first of these we talked about a few weeks ago when we talked about the idea of family. Now, just to be clear, Jesus affirmed that human families, families defined by blood relationships, were important. But he told them the most important family to be a part of was the family of God. At a time when family was everything, what Jesus said was culturally offensive. There was nothing closer in the ancient world than family. Loyalty to family was a really big deal. And Jesus then had redefined family from that being formed by blood relationships to one formed by a relationship with him um, and obedience to God. Jesus also redefined what it meant to be an Israelite. That is, what it meant to be a nation. For generations, the people of Israel saw, thought of themselves as God's chosen people. They alone, among all people on earth, were special. No other nation had the kind of relationship with God that they did. Now, it's true that God had chosen them. But what they missed, which was there almost from the beginning, were subtle and not so subtle hints that the only reason he was blessing them was so that they might bless others. And the nation that they needed to be loyalty ultimately was not Israel, their nation, or even the good old USA but the church of Jesus Christ, the worldwide kingdom of God, that was what they were to become a part of. After 40 days with his followers, it was time for Jesus to leave and return to his Father in heaven. So he gathered them together and he gave some final instructions. There's two parts to what he says. First of all, he said, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, immediately, the disciples began to anticipate this gift of the Holy Spirit, and they wouldn't have to wait long, as we'll see in just a moment. Then Jesus added something more. It was a job that he had given them to do, a job that we have been asked to continue on today. He says in verse 8, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria 
and to the ends of the earth. And with that, Jesus was taken up into the air. There were two men who appeared dressed in white, read angels, who let them know that Jesus was being taken up into heaven. But they said, one day Jesus will return again by the same way, an event we're eagerly anticipating yet today. After that happened, the entire group returned to Jerusalem. Luke tells us that they continued to meet, spending time in conversation and study in the Bible and in prayer. And Luke gives a partial list of those who were there, including a number of the disciples who had followed him closely, his 12, as well as it says, Mary, the mother of Jesus. And that's why we know that Mary was there that moment when Jesus ascended into heaven, and she was also there for an event that immediately follows that is one of the most important events in the history of the early Christian church. That event came when the apostles and the others had gathered once again to discuss and read and pray, when suddenly it says, a sound like wind filled the house and something like flames of fire rested on each of them. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages. Soon a crowd had gathered, attracted by all the noise and the, the visuals. It was made up of people from all over the ancient world. They listened, amazed that they could understand what was being said in their native languages. Astonished and perplexed, they said, what does this mean? And that's when Peter stood up and with Mary and the others listening in, spoke to the crowd. What's going on, you ask? Well, he said, let me explain. And then he told them the story of Jesus, how he taught and walked and performed miracles by the power of God working through him about Jesus' arrest, his trial, and his crucifixion. But then he said dramatically, death could not keep him down, could not keep its hold on him. Instead, God raised him from the dead. Jesus, he concluded, is both Lord and Messiah. Now the crowd, made up almost exclusively of Jews, even though they came from many places and spoke many different languages, were deeply moved. What should we do? What must we do, they asked Peter. And he said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And the response was overwhelming. Luke tells us that over 3,000 people chose that day to become followers of Jesus Christ. Now Mary and the others were astonished. Mary could never have imagined this. But then again, she was learning after all these years that uh, to keep an open mind, because it seemed like every week or so, she was learning more of what God was up to through her son, Jesus. In the last 30 plus years, Mary had learned that Jesus' mission, at least her understanding of it, had evolved. Early on, when the angel visited her and let her know that she was going to be the mother of the Messiah, she expected that her son would grow up to be a combination military general, polished politician, and spellbinding um, preacher. But then, when she and Joseph went to the temple just a few weeks into Jesus' life, they were greeted by an old man named Simeon and an even older woman named Anna, who both told them of how God had blessed them and how God would bless others through this child. And yet, Simeon also added a warning, something saying that one day her heart would be broken. And now she knew that he had been right. Throughout Jesus' growing up years, Mary was puzzled by the experiences that, at times, made her understand that she didn't understand her son as well as she thought she did. And then, when Jesus began teaching and preaching across the countryside, he didn't behave exactly as she had anticipated. 
And then just as he was coming into his own and it looked like her dreams for him would come true, they were dashed when these local authorities, motivated by jealousy, had him executed on a Roman cross. Jesus' death challenged her more than anything else she'd ever experienced because the Messiah was not supposed to die. And yet, as confused as she was, her heart didn't waver. She'd spent so much time with Jesus that she came to, to trust him, even when she didn't understand. And sure enough, a few days later, the script was flipped. That's because on Sunday morning, some of her friends went to the tomb to prepare Jesus' body properly for burial, only to discover that he wasn't there. And then he appeared to them, and they knew that he had risen from the dead. They all rushed back and told the disciples and Mary what they had seen. Mary didn't fully understand until she herself had seen Jesus resurrected. And it was then that she understood that the Messiah's task of redemption and justice through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead had not been as she had thought to build an earthly kingdom. Now she understood his purpose was not to build a political movement on earth, but to build a spiritual kingdom. It was exhilarating to see all these people choose to follow Jesus after Peter spoke. Mary found herself in the middle of a dynamic, growing Christian community, a community committed to telling all that they could about Jesus. Luke tells us that that community was devoted to the things that Peter and the other apostles were teaching. They spent a lot of time together encouraging each other and praying for one another. They also, when they discovered needs, would try to meet those needs. And if they didn't have the resources, they would sell something they owned in order to be able to meet that physical need. People throughout the city looked with favor on them. And every day they saw people choosing to follow Jesus and become a part of that early Christian community. The church became the most important thing in Mary's life. It was a community characterized by love. Love for one another and love for those in the world. When Jesus was teaching and preaching here on earth, he told his disciples, a new commandment I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And that's what Mary experienced. The Christians took Jesus seriously, and so they loved each other. Many were attracted then to this growing Christian community. It's been said that one of the most effective and powerful arguments for Christian faith is Christians, their love for one another and their love for others. And it's what has attracted many through the centuries to Jesus and to his church. Unfortunately, it's also equally true that the most important argument against Christian faith is Christians. Their petty arguments, their divisions, and their bitterness. There's nothing that can destroy a church faster. But Mary was part of a healthy church, not a perfect church, but a healthy one, a church filled with people who loved each other deeply. As we come to the end of this series on the life of Mary, I want to go back to where we started, to the very first week, because we talked about the fact that it is easy, perhaps, to make too much of Mary, to elevate her to nearly divine status. And that's not who she was. For example, we're not to pray to Mary. Instead, we're to pray directly to God. We also need to remember that it's not Mary who redeems us. It's Jesus, from his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, is the one in whom we find mercy and grace and hope for eternity. Not Mary. And yes, sure, Mary did find favor with God, but not because she was more virtuous than all the other young women in Nazareth. 
When the angel told her about this incredible blessing that was going to come her way, Mary's response was to say, all future generations will call me blessed. But she was not pointing out her own greatness. She was pointing people to God. Mary knew that God chose her through a sheer act of grace. And yet, I believe Mary's very important. Her example in faithfulness and love and devotion is one we should emulate. She would not have us turn our attention, though, to her, but to her son, Jesus. Like her, God doesn't choose us because we deserve it. He doesn't even choose us because he sees some hidden potential that might one day blossom into greatness. God chooses us even though he knows full well we'll never live up to our full potential. He knows that many of us, even if not every day, many days, will fail to follow him wholeheartedly. And yet in spite of the fact that we are sinful people, we are blessed and highly favored. We are loved by God. And what Jesus did for us on the cross demonstrates that profoundly. Over the last 10 weeks, my understanding of Mary has grown and deepened. She wasn't perfect, none of us are, but she was a remarkable woman, someone I've come to admire. What this week and last week have shown us about Mary is that she never deserted Jesus. Instead, she stayed with him to the very end, despite confusion and despite difficulty. A few years ago, a friend of mine and I were talking about how we want to be remembered when we're gone. And I know that question sounds a bit narcissistic, but it's still worth reflecting on. And as we talked, my friend said something that has stuck with me. He said, all I want is to finish well. And the reason he said that is that both of us have known people who didn't finish well. But we've also been inspired by those who have. I think that idea of finishing well describes Mary. Her story had a dramatic beginning and a dramatic ending, but in between were long days lived in obscurity, difficult times when she wasn't sure how things would turn out, confusing times when she didn't understand what this son of hers was up to. But through it all, Mary remained steadfast. Despite great difficulty, she followed Jesus all the way to the end. Mary finished well. And oh, that that could be said of us as well. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the example of Mary. While we'll never witness the momentous events that Mary was privileged to see, may we remember that we too have been offered the same grace offered her, the gift of a relationship with you through your son, Jesus. And may we emulate her example of faithfulness and devotion, being true to you, all the way to the very end. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.